Well, it's so good to be back here again. I was thinking about it just before I was coming up here, how being behind this pulpit feels like a comfortable pair of shoes for me. So I'm thankful that we are here this morning. I'll ask you to just bow with me in a word of prayer as we offer this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for bringing us here. We thank you for this time to be together. Lord, it's so rich for us as we sojourn on this earth, walking through the days that you have ordained And we come each week to this day, the Lord's Day, and it's so rich, so refreshing. So like a a fresh drink from a cool spring. We thank you that we can be together and we can interact with one another. We can see each other. We can encourage each other's life. So we thank you for that refreshment. We ask that you would attend to our time as we open your word together, that it would be rich for our souls, that we would learn how we can walk faithfully with you here as we sojourn on this place. As we long for the day of your return, bless our time this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to our time in the Word of God this morning, I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and open them to the book of Colossians. I know some of you are wondering, I thought we were going to Luke. We will. Luke is coming. Not just yet. I, I could not get away from our recent current study on this whole issue of apostasy and its effect for the church without dealing with some other issues that come about when it comes to the church. And so I wanted to return to the book of Colossians, just 95 verses, 642 words in the original language this book is. And I want to focus our attention this morning in chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, down through verse 23. Now, of course, you understand we're not going to get through all of those verses this morning, but you know where we're going to spend our time for the next couple weeks on this issue. Because over the past several months, we have been dealing with the subject of apostasy. As you and I have studied together through the book of Jude, and then as we began a few weeks back looking at the effect of apostasy in the church when it is embraced by the church through some of the churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And for most of us, all of that was rather shocking. Shocking not because we realize that apostasy is there, but shocking because as Christians, it seems rather impossible that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the place the body of Christ, the pillar and support of the truth, as Jude has told us we are to contend for, that it would have the potential to be so affected by false teaching, that it would have the potential to be infiltrated by such heresies as we've seen over the centuries and even as we see today. 
And so as I began to think about that again, I began to ask the question that has probably been on the minds of many of you as we have thought through our last studies, and that is, how does this happen? Just a simple question. How does this happen in the evangelical church? How does the church slip into believing and even promoting untruths? How does the the true church of Jesus Christ get to the place whereby it, it actually believes in heresies and even begins to promote such things, false doctrines like justification by works? How does the church buy into that? When the Scriptures are clear that justification is in Christ alone. How in the world does the church buy into the idea of easy believism without any kind of sanctifying uh, product of fruit in the life once someone believes? That someone can just say, hey, I believe in Jesus and then go on living any way they want. How can the church buy into that? How can the church get into these ideas and aberrant thoughts about spiritual gifts and that we can have some kind of language that somehow sounds like what the angels must have sounded like and therefore we have some kind of higher giftedness than somebody else? How does the church buy into those things? The embracing today of critical race theory in the church. How does the church buy into the nonsense that seems to be so easily drawn up. Well, God gives us an answer to that question. And one place that it is found is right here in Colossians chapter 2. Here, God answers the question, how does it happen? And I want to begin this morning by just reading for us these verses, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2, and reading down through the end of the chapter just to have it in our minds, and then we're going to begin to unfold this over the next couple weeks. Notice what the Apostle Paul says, by means of the Holy Spirit inspiring him, he's speaking the Word of God to the people. Beginning in verse 8, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. 
Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Several years ago, in all of the large newspapers across the country, there ran a Peanuts cartoon where the Students were returning to school on the first day of the new school year, and they were required as they returned to write an essay on why they wanted to return to class. And of course, you can imagine Lucy began, and in the comic strip, Lucy had written this, quote, when vacations are nice, but it's good to get back to school. There's nothing more satisfying or challenging than education, and I look forward to a year of expanding knowledge. Well, in the comic strip, the teacher was very well pleased with what Lucy had said. She began to give plenty of compliments as to what Lucy had written in her essay. And in the final frame of the comic strip, Lucy leans over to Charlie Brown and she says, after a while, you'll learn what sells. I think that's an appropriate introduction to this section of Scripture here in Colossians chapter 2. Why? Because Lucy had learned to practice the fine art of deception. Now, we all understand the reality of deception that it's always with us. We understand that. We, we live in this world. If we're awake and cognitive in any kind of sense, we know that deception is all around us. The potential to be deceived is around every corner. And especially in the evangelical church in our day, with all of its relativistic anti-authority agenda, in evangelicalism today, there is a movement, there is a push, there is a, an idea flowing undercurrent, even if you cannot see it with clarity, an anti-authority agenda. This idea that you can get along in the Christian life and be the authority over your life as if God is not the authority. And yet here in Colossians chapter 2, we find ourselves being exhorted to be careful about deception. 
Now, we've studied Colossians before, and in the larger context of the book of Colossians, they, these, these verses are part of a, a larger section that really begins in verse 4 of chapter 2, and it doesn't end until chapter 3 and verse 4. And there are three main reminders that, that Paul is driving at from all of those verses that he writes down. And the, and the first one in, in verses two or four through seven is this reality that there is a potential for deception. It's, it's a reminder to the Colossian church that, hey, listen, there are those who, who are out there who will deceive. The second is in verses two or chapter two, verse eight through 23, the section that I read this morning. And these are the identifying characteristics of deception. The identifying characteristics of deception. And we're going to begin to look at those here this morning. And then the third one is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and that is the remedy for deception. The ironclad remedy for deception. And so the Apostle Paul is warning the Colossian believers And he's doing that by systematically dismantling the deception that has crept into the Colossian church. And by way of implication, he is doing that for you and I so that we are equipped to recognize deception in our own day. And he's dismantling their deception in a way that sometimes we may not think is the best way. Because as prevalent as false teaching was in the days of the believers in the first century, and while there, as we know from Scripture, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon has said, right? It all comes back around and it's all in different packages. The false teachers of our day are exponentially worse, I would say, than those even of the Colossian church. Why? Simply because of the ease at which the false teaching can spread in our day of information. We live in the electronic age. We see right now, even under the guise of the the world's terms of cancel culture, that you can say one thing today, and in the next moment, the rest of the world is against you because of what you said. Why? Because of the breakneck speed of our information age. Information passes around the globe, Faster than you and I can think. You put something out on social media today, and someone will be bringing it to your attention in a few seconds. One false thought can be in the ears of the unsuspecting in a moment. And for that reason alone, it is imperative that we pay close attention to what the Lord has to say for us here in Colossians chapter 2. There is a great potential for deception. And this is the very reason why Paul begins this entire section in verse 4 with these words. You notice what he says, in order, I say this, in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Notice it isn't simply that the information being said is wrong. That was true enough, even in the Colossian church, about Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ was and the heresy of, of Jesus Christ in His deity that they some were saying He wasn't God. 
But the greater danger isn't just in the information that is wrong. The greater danger is that the information is believed. That the wrong information is actually believed. And when it's believed, it will lead you astray. It doesn't matter how subtle it is. It doesn't matter how blatantly obvious it is or isn't. It will lead you down a path that is not toward Christ. It will lead you down a path that is actually away from Christ. I'm exercised about this in my own mind and heart because of the danger of critical race theory, not only in our world, as some in the world are finally seeing it to be, but also the fact that it has entered into the evangelical church. And some are buying into it. And it's not leading them toward Christ. It's not leading them towards reconciliation. It's not leading them towards a greater love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, it is leading them away from Christ and towards division. That is what makes it so dangerous. In fact, if we were to go to Galatians chapter 1, you would notice that Paul calls it another gospel. Another gospel. Not another gospel of the same kind in his phraseology there. It is another gospel of a completely different kind because it is another gospel that distorts who Christ is. It distorts the very reality of Jesus Christ being the Savior. And so rather than a saving gospel, it is a damning gospel. It's a gospel because it leaves people believing in a Jesus who cannot save. That's what makes it so damning. People go away thinking, thinking they're okay, thinking that they're following Jesus, thinking that they're doing the right thing, when in fact they're following only after a mirage, something that is not real. So what are the identifying characteristics of deception? What makes, in other words, deception, deception? What makes deception, deception? Paul breaks it down for us here into two primary areas. Two primary areas. In verses 8 through 15, he shows us the falsity of what is being taught. The falsity of what is being taught. That's category number one. And area number two is the falsity of how it is practiced, verses 16 through 23. So the falsity of what is being taught and then the falsity of how it's practiced. So not only what is said is wrong, but also then how people practice their life is wrong. By the way, just a side note. This is, this is the entire focus of the entire epistle of Colossians, this reality. This is the entire focus, how we can deal with heresy, how we can deal with false teaching, how we can deal with apostasy in the church. Because Paul doesn't get into some kind of little bitter shouting match about where he, he, he gives all these details of all the all that the heretics believe. He's not going down through a laundry list of here's what they believe, here's what they believe, here's what they believe. No, he simply is systematically, and this is why I said before, sometimes we don't think this is the way to do it, but Paul being driven by the Holy Spirit, giving us the Word of God, how to deal with this, Paul systematically deals with what is false by emphasizing what is true. Paul doesn't give a list of everything that's false and say, okay, when you identify this, no, no, no. Paul systematically dismantles the false by highlighting 
everything that's true. In other words, he exposes the counterfeit by bringing to light what is true and right. In other words, it's his desire that the truth be emphasized. It's his desire that the truth, the truth of God's Word, the authoritative Word of God, the truth rightly divided, it's Paul's desire that that be on our minds, that that be on our hearts, so that when heresy comes, when we have the Word of God so ingrained in us, so implanted in us, so saturated upon us and in us, when heresy comes our way, and it will, and it is, because we know the Word of God so well, because we're so intimate with the truth, that we immediately identify the heresy. We go, wait a minute. That doesn't match. That doesn't sound like, that doesn't look like the Word of God. Oh, sure, it may use the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. Listen, we don't, we don't get swept away by each and every new little evangelical fad that comes down the pipe because each and every one of us who is swept away willfully desire to simply not follow after God anymore. That's not why we get swept away. It's not as if we just go, well, I'm not going to have God. I'm going to follow this over here and this. I know it's not right, but I don't don't like God anymore. That's not why we get swept away as if we just turn our backs on Christ. No, that's not why what you see happening with CRT and evangelicalism today, that is the, the, the people have just turned their backs on God and say, I don't want anything to do with God anymore. That's not why it's happened. No, we oftentimes get swept down the river of deception because we are ill-equipped to recognize the counterfeit when it comes in. We're so ill-equipped in our knowledge of the truth and in the practice of the truth in our lives that we can't tell a counterfeit when it's in the room. We just can't tell. And so Paul's desire by the power of the Holy Spirit is to equip us. And so he begins, notice in verse 8, with a warning. With a warning. Notice what he says. See to it. See to it. We, We just have to stop with that phrase. We have to stop there for a moment with just those few words and realize that this danger is real that this danger is not hypothetical. It is not being over-exaggerated. Some within evangelicalism today, when it comes to critical race theory or any other aberrant doctrine, because it is embraced by individuals who have all kinds of titles and all kinds of letters after their name and before their name, who are in books, they are identified, and they read something in a book that seems like it sounds maybe a little off, but they accept it because of the title of it, because of the person who is saying it, and they're saying, oh, you're just being an alarmist. You're just too much overboard. I mean, after all, it's not that serious. Well, it sure is that serious. It's that serious because of the material, but it's that serious because of what Paul says, because listen, beloved, this is a command to you and I, that you and I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility individually to make sure we are protected. Paul says, see to it. 
In other words, we cannot go about simply relying on someone else or on something else to protect us from being deceived. Each one of us sit here this morning and glad we are sitting here this morning together in an evangelical church that preaches the Word of God and upholds the truth of the Word of God and we want to stand on the Word of God, but you cannot simply say, well, my church preaches the Bible, therefore I'm okay. We cannot rest in thinking that because we go to church on the Lord's Day and because we sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, that that alone, because of sitting under it, will be sufficient to equip us for the inevitable battle for truth. It will not. It will not. No. It's going to take every effort on our part. Every effort in us as Christians to have ourselves saturated with the truth at every moment. To be saturating ourselves with the truth. Ensuring that we understand rightly what it is saying if we are going to recognize what is actually true over and above what is counterfeit. This is discernment. This is critical thinking. We must be critical thinkers. We must be those who, who read things and look at things regardless of who it is and what their names are and who's saying it. We must read it with caution and we must look at it and filter it down through the Word of God. Why? Because the packaging for what is false is just that good. The packaging for what is false is that good. We will never recognize it when we intake so little of what God's Word says. We'll never recognize it. Paul says, you see to it that no one, notice, takes you captive. You see to it that no one takes you captive. That is such a great term. It is such a great word that God gives us here because that's the goal of false teaching. That is what they want to do. That is what the goal of the, the prince of liars is through any kind of false teachers. The ultimate goal is to take us captive. Who is the us? We, the Christian. The Christian. Listen, listen, don't, don't, don't be deluded in this. Listen, Satan isn't concerned with tripping up the world. Satan's not concerned with the world going in a certain direction. He's not concerned with that. They are already his what Satan wants is to damage the church. He wants to damage the bride of Christ. He, know he's, he knows he's fighting a losing battle. He knows he loses in the end. He knows that Jesus Christ who is who he says he is. And so all he can do is damage the bride of Christ. He hates the church. He hates the truth. And therefore, he hates you as a Christian. He desires to take you captive. He desires to take me captive. This is such a great term. This is a military term, by the way. 
the only place it's used in the entire New Testament. It means to carry off. See to it that no one carries you off. Uh, That's what the conquering army would do with the spoils of war. They would come in, they would destroy the place, and they would carry off everything that they wanted. You might even use the word in our own language, kidnap. Kidnap. It's a good word. It's a good word to describe it because Paul says you have to ensure that you don't become a spiritual kidnap victim of the lies of Satan. It's on you. It's a command. It's your responsibility. It's you as a Christian. You must be so saturated with the truth, so, so into the truth, so, so understanding of the truth as God has given to us and as God has gave us the meaning of it by what He has said. You have to have that so that you ensure that you're not a spiritual kidnap victim of Satan. Very serious. This is not just a game. The danger is imminent and the warning is urgent. And we would do well to pay close attention to it because the consequences are spiritually deadly. I was thinking about this as a leader in the church, as an elder in the church. It absolutely grieves the heart of every pastor that I know and talk to when they learn that one of their sheep, or even several of the sheep, are are, are drawn away. Why? Because of self-imposed kidnapping. Because of self-imposed immaturity. They're tripped up. They're taken captive. They become the victim of some kind of false teaching, and they begin to follow it. This grieves the heart. And then... Some, gratefully, in the end, find out that they're duped into thinking that they had found some new and profound truth. When in fact, when in reality, it was just a lie. It was a lie that took them captive. Beloved, this is why the leadership team of this church, both the elders and the deacons, strive to continually watch, to continually evaluate those things that are continually assaulting us in the evangelical realm. That's why sometimes people will come to me as a pastor and say, hey, pastor, what do you think of this book? And, and I have to try to stay on the, the cutting edge of all of that nonsense so that when someone comes to me, I can say, well, wait a minute, hold off. You, you probably shouldn't read that. Someone came to me recently about something they were watching. And I said, well, you want to be careful because it was funded by this group, and that group certainly isn't about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In fact, they don't even think He's God. You see, the danger is real. The danger is imminent. And the danger wants to take each one of us captive. Satan Satan doesn't want us to completely abandon the church. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want us to abandon what we say we believe. He doesn't want us to abandon our faith. He just wants us to redefine it. He just wants us to ease it. He wants us to become an, an enemy sympathizer. He wants us to get to the place that what we believe is no longer the truth. It looks like the truth. It might even sound like the truth, but it's no longer truth, but you still go about believing that it is. He doesn't want you to completely live against God. 
Oh, sure, he'd take that. Sure, turn your back. Completely apostatize, show yourself to not be a believer. Yeah, he'd take that. But what's better? What's better? What's better for the prince of lies is to deceive us into thinking that we are serving and following Christ when in fact we're not. We're following the lie. But we believe it's true. What better than to have a bunch of Christians who say they're following Jesus Christ, believing in lies, believing in justification by works, believing in the nonsense of CRT, when in fact they're believing it's true. Satan just wants us comfortable with the lie. That's all. Just get comfortable with the lie. You get comfortable with the lie, you become a spoil of war. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Well, how does that happen? How how does the counterfeit enter in unnoticed? How does it happen? Well, Paul gives two specific ways. Notice what he says. Notice what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Now these, beloved, are the means through which apostasy creeps into the church. These are the means through which apostasy comes in and then begins to have its cancerous effect upon the church. It is impossible for me to stand up here before us and be able to to list, like Paul doesn't do either, it would be impossible to list each and every counterfeit teaching that has come into the church throughout the ages and what is coming into the church even today. In fact, even if I could do that, even if I had a comprehensive list of every heresy that has come down the pipe throughout the ages, that still wouldn't be enough to equip us to identify the next one coming. And so, like the Apostle Paul, he sticks to identifying the titles, the overarching titles in which they can be identified so that we'll be equipped to identify all the counterfeits as they come. They come through philosophy and empty deception. So the first means through which apostasy, the the heresies of evangelicalism, enter the church, they come through, first, philosophy. What is philosophy? What is philosophy? Well, simply defined, it is human wisdom. That's philosophy. Human wisdom. Wisdom and human understanding of human wisdom. In other words, it's ideas of speculation rather than according to absolute objective truth. It is the speculations of men from man's perspective about man's life and how man can handle life itself. In a literal sense, it is, in this It's going to sound confusing at first, but in a literal sense, it's the love of wisdom. You say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. That sounds very good. Love of wisdom. I mean, as Christians, ought not we love wisdom? Right? Shouldn't we love wisdom? In fact, doesn't the Bible even say to search for it in Proverbs? Aren't we to search for wisdom? Aren't we to have a love for wisdom and listen to wisdom and search for it with our heart and in reality, therefore, then love wisdom? Aren't we to love wisdom? 
In one sense, we could say yes. Right? Because the Bible tells us to seek that. We are commanded to seek wisdom. The difference comes in as to where that wisdom comes from. Right? Paul is referring to in Colossians not to the wisdom that comes from God. He's not talking about the wisdom that comes from above. He's not talking about wisdom that we find in the Word of God, the canon of the Scriptures, rightly divided. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about the objective, absolute truth of God as it's stated and defined by God here in the Bible. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. The kind of wisdom that doesn't look to the authoritative, objective, absolute truth of Scripture. The kind of wisdom that comes from a self-appointed authority. An authority that rests not on God and what God says and as God defines it, but rather on what so-called wisdom comes from man. The kind of wisdom that man defines from his own perspective. That's what he's talking about. That's the philosophy that Paul means. In fact, there are several places that we kind of get an example of this idea taking place, this philosophy. Over in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, Paul says, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of a strange deity because Paul was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is here on on Mars Hill and he's preaching to the people about Jesus Christ. He's teaching absolute truth. And you have these who are filled with man's wisdom standing there and going, you know, it's interesting what you're saying. That doesn't seem to match what we're saying. They were out of the philosophies of men. In fact, you notice in verse 32 of that same chapter, Acts 17, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, oh, then some began to sneer and others said, ah, we'll hear this again. We'll hear some other time. This is just another argument. We don't believe it. We don't buy it. Why? Because it doesn't come from our wisdom. It's not what we've derived. This is the very thing that the Apostle Paul was saying to the believers in Rome as he wrote, In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, for even though they knew God, why? Because God has put it in everyone, right? He's made himself evident to all by what he has made, it says in verse 19 and 20 of Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. But what? They became futile in their own speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And even though that was the case, notice verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. They professed a wisdom of men had all the knowledge from an intellectualism that they had derived from their own self, that God was not to be honored, that God wasn't even existent. And their foolish speculations were only puffed up in their mind so that they professed to be wise. In reality, they were actually fools. The Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
says this, let no man deceive himself. Sounds a lot like Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one delude you, right? That no one deceive you. Let no man deceive himself. See, when you don't see to it, you are deceiving yourself. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become foolish so that he might become wise. Do you pride yourself on your own wisdom? You pride yourself on what you know and all the knowledge you have in the worldly realm and all the things the world has to offer and man's view of man's self from man's perspective. And you, you've got it all down. You can give any answer. You're, you're very intellectual in that way. Listen, when you raise yourself to that way, then guess what? You better just become a fool so that you'll be wise because that's not wisdom at all. Why? Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Verse 19. Colossians, 1 Corinthians 3. For it's written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Man boasts so much about himself. Oh, he can answer any question. He can solve any problem. He's got all the answers. God, take the day off. In fact, God, we don't even care if you're around anymore. We'll do it ourselves. God just laughs. God just laughs. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul says, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow in the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Talking about the resurrection, you don't even understand the actual practical realities of even life here, even though you profess to be wise. How can you ever understand the spiritual things when the things of God are way beyond you? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, verse 3, For we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Why? Because our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What kind of fortresses are those, Paul? You mean, you mean actual physical fortresses? You mean we walk around and we can just knock down buildings and things with our words? No. It says we're talking about the things of the mind, speculations. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. See, we are, we are fighting against the wisdom of the world that calls itself wisdom with the truth of God with the reality of what God says and what God means by what it says. We are taking every thought captive to obedience to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience. That's what Paul says. Listen, we don't follow the wisdom of the world. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 20, 
Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. This false knowledge some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Paul says, listen, you stay away from that nonsense. Now in Paul's day, according to at least the historian Josephus, there were three basic philosophical schools that ruled the day. Three basic worldly wisdom thinking. And all of them really had, in some sense, a religious backing. They were, if we could use the term for our day, evangelical. The first was the Sadducees. This was the philosophical school of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were, were mostly from the rich, the, the well-influential families of the day. They were the, the ones who, who sat on ecclesiastical councils, those in the higher forms of religious uh, groups, denominations, if you will, supported the policies of the government around them, the Roman government that was ruling the day. And it was always with the purpose of not rocking the boat. We just don't want to rock the boat. Listen, can't we all just get along? Let's wrap our arms around each other. Let's have a big kumbaya moment. They didn't like conflict among the people. And so they just compromised for the sake of some kind of temporary earthly calm. what happened years ago in the ecumenical movement of our day and the joining of Catholicism with Protestantism in many hearts. They would have had the attitude that it was okay to compromise so that we all just get along. That's why the Sadducees denied the resurrection. They said the soul died with the body. That a man had to had a completely free will to determine his own fate in life. That's what the Sadducees taught. Yet Paul comes along and says, no, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Your will isn't free at all. Yeah, it's free in one sense. It's free to do according to what its nature is, and its nature is deadness. Without Christ, it will always respond with deadness. The other... Another philosophical group of the day were the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the largest following of the day because they did believe in the resurrection, and most people believed there was some kind of resurrection. But what set the Pharisees apart was their traditionalism. Their traditionalism. In other words, they followed legalistically after the the written traditions. If you had one misstep, one out of step, out of line, reality from those traditions, then you would show yourself completely unrighteous. So they were driven by works righteousness. You know, as you read through the Gospels, they were the major opponents of Jesus Christ in His day because Jesus Christ came along and challenged them at every level about their works righteousness out of love, out of a heart's compassion from God Himself to the people, really truly showing them what was true and right that they had totally turned upside down the truth of God and made it their own, and yet they refused and rejected Him. And then the third philosophical group of the day you don't hear a whole lot about was the Essenes. Essenes aren't mentioned by name in the New Testament. 
but they're certainly mentioned in Jewish history, particularly by Josephus. By the way, Josephus was a, was a uh, contemporary of John, so he was there during the day. You, you know the Essenes, maybe not by that name, but you know them because they were the ones who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right, so there was a kind of a mixture of both previous groups, Sadducees and the Pharisees, but, but the Essenes were more separatist by their very character and nature. They were, they were like many of the cults of our own day that go into communal types of living. They separate themselves from society because to them that's a sign of righteousness. So these are the three major philosophic philosophies of the day. This was man's wisdom according to man's view on display. And each of them took some part of the truth, some part of what God said, and redefined it. Redefined it to make it fit their own desires. They changed the way of righteousness from Christ to some set of rules, some set of legalistic efforts. Each and every one of them, Paul says, are empty deception. Philosophy and empty deception. Literally, vain delusions. That's the idea. That's the literal sense of it. Vain delusions. So what they may have considered to be the ultimate wisdom, and what they sought after with a whole lot of energy, was in reality just a fraud and a trick. A delusion. Wasn't what it appeared to be. Sounded good. It read well. It looked really good in a book and on a page. It came, it came from those who were the intellectual giants of the day, but all it did was deceive. You believed it, you were led astray. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we learn anything this morning, if we, we get anything from what is being said here this morning, we have to learn this. There is no value at all in human philosophy. I cringe. I cringe as a pastor anytime I hear a young college student saying, I'm going to school to get a degree in philosophy. I go, oh, please don't. Don't do it. There is no value in human philosophy, no matter how religious it may sound. If it begins in human wisdom, then it's empty and foolish. One commentator, Herbert Carson, I think is helpful on this when he says this, quote, philosophy is the developed sense with its emphasis on the primacy of human reason, reason or human reason and therefore must be opposed. The Christian may see a certain negative value in speculative philosophy and so will constantly on, be, be on guard lest when he comes to study Scripture, he comes as a humanist and not a believer. But this does not mean that we should come with blind, unreasoning faith but it does mean that instead of bringing philosophical human ideas which will color our study of Scripture, we must come to our study conscious of the finiteness of our intellect and aware that our mind also is affected by our sinful nature. We must come willing to be taught by the Holy Spirit 
and acknowledge that it is the Word of God rather than our own reason that is the final authority of truth. Now there's the issue. There is the issue in the evangelical church today. Some have come to Scripture thinking and saying that the Scriptures are the final authority of truth, and yet in practice it is not. This is where it all begins, beloved. What is and what will be the authority in our life? What is the authority? Not simply what is authority by words, and and we say that it's the authority, because every evangelical that I know that has any weight in evangelicalism will say the Scriptures are the authority. And yet in practice it doesn't seem to be. Is it going to be the wisdom of the world and its speculations as to what is true and right and what will bring us life in this world with great joy? Or will the final authority fall to the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God found only in His Word. Is that going to be our final authority? Is that how we are going to live? Is that how we are going to have life defined regardless if that means we are standing alone? You see, for the believers in Colossae, the battle was on. Who were they going to follow? Who were they going to follow? The world has its wisdom. The world has its philosophies. But all of those would be completely and totally powerless and inadequate in bringing any of them to Christ and bringing any of them into Christ-likeness in their life to do anything for them in any kind of eternal saving relationship with a holy God. The world's wisdom and its philosophies will help nothing. In the philosophies of men, there is no solid ground. For saving faith, there is no solid ground for the truth. There is no solid ground for the church. The philosophies of men are simply that. Avenues by which you will be taken captive. And you will begin to redefine the truth and redefine what is right and redefine life, and redefine what love is, and redefine what Christian help is, and redefine what justice in our world is. You will redefine a whole host of things. Why? Because you're not believing what God said. You're believing what you have dreamed up in your own mind according to worldly wisdom. Go back for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter... One. I think this is a good place for us to even close our time this morning. First Corinthians chapter one. Notice what the apostle Paul says to the Corinthian believers, beginning in verse eight, for the verse eighteen, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why? 
Because it's written. I love how why Paul says that. Because it's, it's been given to us by God. Because it's been passed down to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the instruments of God whereby we have the Scriptures. It is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Scribe meaning the lawyer, the one who knew the law. Where is that? Where is the debater of this age? Where's the one who wants to bring argumentation? Where's the one who's the philosopher, the wise one? Where is this person? Because God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. How? Because since in the wisdom of God, The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God, in His wisdom, has revealed it such that man, through his own philosophies, through his own empty deceptions, in no way can lead anyone to God. Because in their wisdom, they didn't come to know God. So God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. People say, why do you preach the Word of God? It's the only thing that will save. It sounds so ridiculous. It sounds so foolish. The world goes, that's a bunch of nonsense. You guys are just wacky people. The Bible is just some history book. Listen, you can do with what you want with it, but it's just a book written by men. No, it isn't. It's God's Word. And God says, listen, if you believe it, you'll know. You'll know Christ. You'll know true wisdom. The Jews, they ask for signs. That's the religious. The religious say, hey, sh- show me, prove it to me. The Greeks, that, that's the irreligious, the, 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 the barbarian, the, the rest. They search for wisdom. Ah, we'll do it this way. The Jews, the, well, well, we'll do it through our own righteousness. But we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. To to the religious, to those who are works righteousness, that's a stumbling block. Because we say in Christ alone there is salvation. It's only by Christ alone you cannot do anything. You cannot help yourself into the kingdom of heaven. It's by Christ alone you must repent of your sins, turn from your sin, embrace Jesus Christ by faith, and you will be saved. To that is a stumbling block to those who want to get in by works righteousness. And to the rest of the world... That's just foolishness. For the rest of the world, that's moronic. It's the stupidest thing they've ever heard. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, doesn't matter from which camp you come, Jews, Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Why is that so? Because, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. I don't want to degrade the reality of God's character, but the fact of the matter is, on God's worst day, He's better than man will ever be on man's best day. There is no wisdom in the world. In fact, notice chapter 2, Paul says, 
Listen, my message and my preaching, verse 4, were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't come to you with worldly wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom. We speak wisdom. But it's a wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. We speak God's wisdom. That's what we speak. You see, when the heresies come in, we know the wisdom of God. And so we go, wait a minute. We speak God's wisdom. This is what God says. This is what God says we are to do. Oh, sure. You want to leave us? You want to hate us? You don't want to stand with us? That's fine. We, we don't want that. We truly want to plead with you to, to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ. But listen, we're not going with you. We're going to have the heart set like Flint, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that says this. Listen, we're not going to bow down to you. And even if you want to kill us, that's fine. God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to you. Why? Because we have God's wisdom. We have God's wisdom. Wisdom, verse 8 of chapter 2, which none of the rulers of this age had understood. Because if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. See, that's the wisdom we teach. That's the wisdom we stand on. We don't stand on the foolishness the world brings about and their machinations. We go to the Word of God and we say, wait a minute, this is what's true and right. The hallmark, beloved, of the Christian faith is God's revolution as God, or God's revelation as God defines it. That's the hallmark of the Christian faith. The authority of the Word of God in our life, for all of life, and for godliness. Why? Because it's outside of us. It's objective. It will call us up when we sin. It will, it will divide down to the thoughts and intention of the heart and show you where you're wrong. It is concrete. It alone is the very thing that brings life. Why? Because it proclaims Jesus Christ who is life. He is truth. See, the world may know what sells. They may be able to market that. They may be able to spin it any way and say it in a way that sells. But we know what brings life. We know what brings life. True wisdom is not humanly discovered. It is divinely given. The Apostle Paul says, see to it, see to it, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. And we'll continue next time. I want to get to Luke. I want to get there. We're not getting there yet. We need to finish hearing this before we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these things this morning, Lord. What what richness, what truth. Lord, we may not be able to name all the things that Satan is packaging. But Lord, we can be critical thinkers. We can know your word. We've been given your word and we've been given the spirit that can lead us and guide us in truth. 
We can recognize, we just need to ask the questions. We need to be scrutinizing. We need to be critical thinkers. We need to be discerning. We need to be willing to stand alone, knowing that your word is the authority. Nothing else matters. Your word is the only thing that matters. So Lord, by your spirit, grant us that grace. Equip us with that energy, with that fortitude. And guard us, guard us as you have promised. Until that very end, till that day when we see you face to face. May we prove ourselves faithful to you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.